0: Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. And this is Jay. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for Wednesday, January 19th, 2022. Huge, huge week this week. Uh, Just a reminder, if you're looking for the DC books, it's a big DC week as well. 17 new books and a lot of really important debuts. First, Tini Howard on Catwoman, uh, debut of The Night from chip sadarsky talking about bruce wayne traveling around the world training to become batman uh, a, a lot of mini series are coming down to the next to the last issue so a lot of that stuff is um is, is really important and impactful so if you're looking for the dc stuff go check out yesterday's dc spotlight spoilers included we break those books down pretty pretty good um Today, we're going to be talking about Marvel and some independence. This will be spoiler-free, so uh, if you haven't had a chance to check out the books, that's okay. I'll also give a rundown at the end of some other titles you might want to be on the lookout for when you hit up your comic shop. Uh, All right, so let's go ahead and dive right in. Uh, We'll start with Jay's first book. It's Devil's Reign, tying into that Chip Zdarsky-run event that kicked off in Daredevil. Uh, And this one's Devil's Reign X-Men. And it's written by Jerry Dugan. We have art by uh, Phil Noto. Corey Petit does the letters. Uh, This was an interesting one. What did you think?
1: I was looking forward to this because I like Phil uh, Noto's artwork. I always think it's just awesome, (laughs) but it was good. Uh, We got a flashback. We know Fist has always had people working for him, but I guess we never really covered the base of Emma being that uh, storyline, which is kind of cool. The story itself was. great uh, like i said the artwork was beautiful So the old saying i go is like whatever you do in the past comes back to, to haunt you so i guess one of our characters is gonna have to uh be careful i guess he's got a little uh payback he's got you know what i mean so it's kind of cool how Fist play that out
0: yeah it's it's pretty interesting and, and what, what i love about this even though it's jerry dugan writing it and not jonathan hickman It very much feels like a Hickman written book in terms of it's all political, you know, which is exactly what's been going on in uh, in the Daredevil book with Fisk and the sort of like Civil War, uh, Civil War, the sequel, you know, call it Civil War 2 because actually had a a Civil War 2. But yeah, Fisk is is not happy. So I, I don't know. I haven't looked at the solicits, so I'm not sure if, if this is an ongoing, if it, I mean, it won't be an ongoing, obviously because of the event, but are these just one shots that are tying in? I, I don't know, because at the end, it says next uh, Invisible Woman, but I don't, you know, I don't see enough. If you go and look at the coming soon in the back, like a lot of the X-Men books have, I don't see another Devil's Reign book listed. So either way, it was nice to get some context of, of what, um, what the X-Men are doing in terms of this Devil's Reign series. It's it's interesting the way Marvel's structuring this Devil's Reign series because it it feels like a very small event, but then there's all these one-shot tie-ins that are making it feel so different. Like, especially last week, the, uh, the superior foes of Spider-Man, which I can spoil it now, uh, but that was crazy that we got a mashup of Hulk and Dr. Octopus and Wolverine and Dr. Octopus. And Ghostwriter and Dr. but like, you know, it's that, that old um, Marvel or a uh, uh, fantastic four run where it was the, the fantastic four where it was the gray Hulk Wolverine. It was in the nineties, of course, gray Hulk Wolverine ghostwriter and Spider-Man and had those art Adams covers. And this, they're kind of playing off of that. So uh, it was the last thing I expected <laughs> in a devil's tie time to see something multiversal multiversal and cosmic like that so it was pretty cool so i'm not not i'm not necessarily surprised to see uh, even though the x-men the x-men corner of the marvel universe has never tied into the regular marvel universe less than it does right now i feel like um but it was good that they showed up even if it was only for this one shot uh okay first book i'm going to mention is aerosmith behind enemy lines this is from co-creators kurt Busick and carlos pacheco Jose Rafael Fonterez is the inker. Jose Villarubia does the colors. Uh, Comic Crafts, Tyler Smith, and Jimmy Betancourt handle the letters and the design. Uh, so there was a, a Wildstorm series back in the day called Aerosmith. And it's basically, it's kind of like alternate history. So it still tells the, it's still on Earth and it's still recognizable. But instead of like the United States of America, it's like the United States of Columbia There's magic, there's dragon. So it's almost like a mix of of alternate history with some fantasy elements thrown in. And it's just, it's done really, really well. Um, And I know it's something that Busick and Pacheco wanted to get back to at one point. They mentioned doing a sequel series and then they couldn't, get their schedules worked out. And then they were going to do it just as a graphic novel and, and just put it out all at once. And then that kind of fell by the way, sorry, by the wayside, And now they've adapted it back to being a monthly and uh, Busick's focusing on his creator-owned work right now. And so this fits right in. They've moved it over to image and it's just, a, it's a fantastical story. Um, basically it's the story of this, uh, this guy, his last name is, uh, is Aerosmith. I'm trying to remember what his first name is, but he's basically, um, He's like a soldier in the army, but he's not, he's not like regular infantry. Uh Fletcher Aerosmith, that's his name, right? Like Arrow and and, you know, Fletcher, it's kind of play on words. But anyway, um, you know, instead of having an air force, these armies, what they have is they have these little pet hatchling dragons that they're sort of bonded with. And they basically like trade abilities. Like they, they take the dragon's ability for flight with a spell and then the dragon rides on their shoulder and, and that's where they, how they go and fight. So instead of having air, you know, an air force, or whatever, that's how they go. And they drop bombs that they're carrying or um, drop, you know, magicals cast, magical spells or, or that sort of thing. So that's where this Fletcher Aerosmith, that that's the the role he plays in, uh, in the army. And obviously, Based on the name behind enemy lines, the subtitle there, you'll, you'll realize that, yeah, he goes on this mission where he, he has to sneak behind enemy lines. And, uh, there's a lot of flashback in the first issue that allows us to get to know who Fletcher Aerosmith is and gives us context for the story in the world. In case you never read the first Aerosmith, which I, I never did. I always wanted to, I heard it was really, really good, but I never took the time to go and track it down. Um, and I think it's still in print. I think you can find collections. I I've I'm, I'm been meaning to look. Just been so busy because as soon as I read this first issue of this new series, I wanted more. Like I want more of this of these characters and more of this world. So it, yeah, it's really really good. I can't really say anything more about the story without spoiling. Um, but I, what I will say is, is Fletcher Aerosmith is a very likable and competent soldier and he's somebody that you you root for you know he has he has like a sense of honor and this does even though it's alternate history mixed with some fantasy it does have a little bit of um, almost like a regal feeling not that we've been introduced to any royalty but there's a there's a properness to it um maybe it's because it's set in in the uk and i'm not sure but uh, i just get that sense and uh this is actually so it's it's like the equivalent of world war one um but it's before the u.s has been drawn into the conflict but fletcher aerosmith again that sense of honor he he he, he volunteered even though he's an american or a colombian i think united states of Colombia. um he's already over there and involved even before uh the united states has joined the war so uh and the artwork by pacheco is, is fantastic some of the best work i've ever seen him do the color work by Via Rubia, it's it, its not real brightly colored. It's sort of muted, which gives it more of a sense of um, being sort of old-fashioned and keeps it grounded and keeps it from feeling too, like, super heroic because this is really a, a, you know, a war slash um, magic comic, you know, or war, war slash fantasy. So I highly recommend it. Really, really well done. Uh, okay. Okay. Let's see. Up next, Jay has Amazing Spider-Man number 86. Uh, This is written by Zeb Wells, who we now know is going to be the solo writer for Amazing Spider-Man when it relaunches the new number one in a few months after this Beyond uh, storyline is done. So Zeb Wells is a writer. Michael Dowling does the art. Brian Valenza is on colors and Joe Caramon is on uh, on letters. So uh, fill us in on this one. Jay, what are your thoughts?
1: Oh, okay. Uh, just real quick with the, uh, that uh, X-Men series. It's going to be three. It's a three-issue series. Oh, so,
0: gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that's the, what uh, it was. The yeah. X-Men Devil's Reign? Yep. Yes. Gotcha.
1: So, so for Spider-Man, if you read the last issue, we know that uh, the corporation of course is evil. Um, <laughs> we all kind of figured that, I think. They usually are. Uh, ben gets information from Doc Ock where he kind of disappears. So uh, this one's interesting. Uh, you have Ben talking to his uh, shrink and you know he's thinking he could be open and honest with her but you know the other thing you know how things go in the storyline it's not going to be good for Ben (laughs) it's a good story uh it can't go away too much of what happens in it but uh his wife kind of suspects the same thing so she's you know help trying to help out the best she can but the ending is trippy because I guess we find out more of what they uh kind of did to Ben and they're trying to redo it again but I think it goes wrong so I'm just curious how, what they're going to do the next issue with Ben because now it's like, okay, now what? You know, so it's kind of interested.
0: Yeah, it, it was a great issue. Really fast paced too. Like oh I, yeah. It read really quick. Um, but the biggest thing I took away from last issue once, I mean, <laughs> Doc Ock, classic Spider-Man villain and he, he's sort of playing the role of hero almost because that's how evil the Beyond Corporation is. They're making Doc Ock look good, right? And when when Ben gets that that hard drive and sees the information and sees beyonds true opinion of him, he is pissed. You know, that's what really comes through in those last couple pages. And it continues in the first couple pages of this one, like Ben is, is wearing that, like he's taking it personally. You understand why he's upset. And when you see the manipulation and the stuff that beyond is doing to Ben, not only to Ben, but to Ben's girlfriend, to other people, other employees that work, that like that Maxine woman, like, I, I almost wish that this was like, so we've been doing Spawn, if you, you know, are a regular listeners to the podcast, you know, we've been covering Spawn daily. Um, and it's like, Spawn doesn't, most of the time he doesn't pull any punches. Like if somebody's evil, he just takes them out. Like he goes crazy on them and it's really violent and and bloody and whatever. And, you know, it's not typically what marvel would do but because i'm reading so much spawn in my mind i'm i'm reading and i'm seeing this maxine character and i really don't like her and i want i want ben or peter to go spawn on her you know like (laughs) i want her strung up by her own intestines like she is just she's pure evil like she she rivals norman osborne in her like callousness and her just despicable behavior like i just despise her so uh yeah i'm I'm really curious to see where this goes, and I'm and I'm curious to see Zeb Wells take over of Spider-Man as the the solo writer because, you know, what they teased looks looks pretty insane. And any long-time listeners of the podcast will know I'm not the biggest John Romita Jr. fan in terms of art, but he's coming back to to Spider-Man, and f- that's been some of his better work over the years. Has been on Spider-Man, so I don't know. We'll have to see how that plays out. Uh, okay, let's see. Next up, I have uh, another Devil's Reign tie-in. It's called The Villains for Hire. Uh, this is from a writer that I'm not familiar with. It's Clay uh, McLeod Chapman. Pencils are by Manuel Garcia. Inks are by Lorenzo Ruggero and Scott Hanna. Uh, John Livesey, Andy Owens, Victor Nava. And then colors are by Photo Bunkers, Dono Sanchez Almara and Fair Safuentes Suho. Letters are by Joe Sabino. That one I, I can pronounce pretty easily. Um, so it's kind of interesting. It, it's, it's villains for hire. So basically this is the, the quote unquote Thunderbolts um, title. The Thunderbolts being sort of. Um, Wilson Fisk's own personal Avengers team. That's enforcing his uh, no, no vigilantism, no superheroing hearing in, uh, in New York. So. It It's interesting to see the team who they put together. It's the female Whiplash, it's Rhino, it's the female Electro, and Agony, who is uh, one of the offsprings of, of Carnage, basically. So, a symbiote. Um, and, you know, these aren't, it's not even like these are villains who you would think, other than Rhino, who who at various times, like most recently I saw him team up with Miles Morales, and he's been sort of on the side of Angels. But the rest of them are not people who, are villains who you you see ever doing good. And they're—I oh, should also mention—they're led by Taskmaster, um, which when when he shows up, it's a it's a really cool looking panel from uh, from Manuel Garcia. Um, but the, you know, <laughs> these aren't—you know—sometimes you get guys like Sandman or um, God, who who are some other. Villains who sometimes they're they're bad guys, like Magneto, you know, uh, Punisher. Sometimes they're bad guys. Sometimes they're good guys. It's kind of play in the middle. Um, they're sort of always on their own team as opposed to being on the good guy team or the bad guy team. That's not the case with these Thunderbolts. These guys are just out and out bad. Um, and Fisk doesn't really he doesn't really pull any punches when he's ordering them around. Like he knows the stuff he's telling them to do is just is just bad. So, uh, this first issue, though, not a whole lot happens. We get introduced to the team and there's, uh, for whatever reason, there's a bunch of masked guys that are trying to uh, rob the Met Gala and and steal from the rich people that are there. These Thunderbolts stop it and then they're back in in City Hall, basically, with Fisk yelling at them. And that's sort of the whole issue. (laughs) There's not a whole lot else that happens Uh, but at the end we do get another character that shows up who i guess he's sort of in that gray area as well sometimes good sometimes bad just depending um but i'm curious to see where that goes like is he is he is he there as a you know under instructions from like the avengers or somebody somebody who's actually opposed to what fisk is doing and he's being planted there as a double agent or is he given into his you know, baser instincts and and just wants to be able to have license to go beat the crap out of people because it's a character that does like to exercise his um, his agency and and go and get ultra violent. So we'll see how it all plays out. Best thing about it's the art because again, the story not a whole lot happens, uh, but the the pencil art by Manuel Garcia is is just fantastic. Like I said, I especially loved the the scene where we see. Um, Taskmaster showed up for the first time after he's shot his bow off just a beautiful panel. So, uh, all right, up next for Jay, Primordial number five. This is from Jeff Lemire. Andrea Sorrentino handles the art, Dave Stewart on colors, Steve Wands on letters. Uh, what'd you think, Jay?
1: It was good, it was just a uh, trick, crazy because I guess, uh, now we're in the future. It's uh you know 2024 and it just starts off with uh, Russia and Sweden. <laughs> I was like, okay. So I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, because I guess because the space war kind of messed everything up. But we're getting our heroes that are in space, the three animals that were up in space, uh returning home, and that's pretty much the whole story of them trying to come back, but it doesn't go as well as they planned. It, I was it was just a uh, a fast read. I mean, there wasn't a lot of dialogue in this issue. And I want a little bit more of the story, but I guess the ending said it all. I guess the last panel that you see is like, wow, okay. So I don't know where we're going to go next.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, this, the series has been interesting because it's been very light on, on any sort of dialogue or exposition or explanation with what's going on. The art has been doing a lot of heavy lifting. So I, I feel like there's worth to the series, but I, I feel like it's one of those series that I almost wish it was just released as an original graphic novel, like the whole story in one. Yeah. Um, because I feel like it's one of those series where until you get the ending and the payoff, you don't really appreciate the journey to getting there. Because even, I mean, this five issues in, and I'm still trying to figure out, like, things are happening you know, animals are on their way back now, but we don't know, you know, how they ended up, where they ended up out in space. We don't know. We haven't gotten a lot of context for the events that happened that caused the Soviet Union and and the United States to shut down their space programs. Like, there's still more questions than there are answers at this point. So, uh, beautiful series to look at, though. Gorgeous art. Um, and I, I am going to keep reading it because I really do want to know what happens. Uh, okay, we got a new number one. It's Ben Reilly, Spider-Man. This is from writer J.M. Dematteis. David Baldione is the artist. Israel Silva does colors. Joe Caramagna on letters. This is sort of an alternate reality book. Um, so if you if you were reading Spider-Man back in the '90s with the Clone Saga, you might know that originally, part of the reason they chose to tell the story, what they were going to do, was they the writers, the editors, somebody at Marvel was was sort of tired of, of the Peter MJ dynamic. And they, they had sort of decided that marrying Peter off to marry Jane was a, was a mistake. They were, they were running out of stories. You know, it, sales were dropping and they wanted to get back to basics, right? Like what made Spider-Man a fan favorite and a bestseller back in the day was, was Peter being a bachelor. Uh, you know, struggling to date and pay bills and take care of Aunt May and J. Jonah Jameson always calling him a Spider-Man a menace and, and that sort of thing. So they came up with this idea of doing the clone saga and the clone um, that uh, Jerry Conway had created that's you know, supposedly had died in 149, didn't really die and brought him back. And what we were originally, the rumor is, what was supposed to happen in the clone saga is when we find out the the person that we thought was a clone is the real Peter Parker, and the person that we've that has been starring in Amazing Spider-Man from issue 150 all the way up to whatever it was, you know, the 400s, um, high 300s, whatever. Like that was the clone, and I think I think it started like leaking out, and the fans lost their minds because they were like, wait. So for over half the run, for well over half the run, we're talking from issue 150 to like issues, you know, three, hundred and eighty. you know, so the real Peter Parker only started in 149 issues. And now we've been reading about an imp- imposter for 230 issues. So I think they wisely made the choice. Okay. That's not actually true. The one you've been reading about was the real Peter Parker all along, and this other guy's the clone, and the clone took the name of Ben Riley, so he took you know Uncle Ben's first name and May's maiden name, and and called himself Ben Riley, and he's been around for you know years in the Marvel Universe. This story that J.M. DeMatteis is telling here, um, which is the humanity agenda number one of five, and I don't know if it's just a five issue mini or if it's going to go on after that. This is going back to the idea that. Ben Riley is the one true uh, uh, Peter Parker is the is was born as Peter Parker, Uh, and the other guy that actually married uh, Mary Jane is the clone, and so again it's somewhat of an alternate reality. Um, We're dialing the clock back a little bit and saying, okay, um, Peter and MJ are about to have a baby. And so they they leave New York City. Peter gives up being Spider-Man. They're, they move to like Portland or somewhere, Seattle. Um, and Ben Riley comes back to New York City to be Spider-Man. Um, he's he's given up the identity of Peter Parker, but he still is the original Peter Parker, but now known as Ben Riley. And he's got anger. He's got anger for the life that he he got cheated out of, you know, and you don't necessarily blame him. So that's where the series starts off. There's a lot of angst. It's a little bit of a darker. Uh, this Ben Riley has a little more of an edge to him, certainly than uh, than a Peter Parker would, even though he is the one true Peter Parker. The art by David Baldione is is a fantastic. Uh, it's it's a if you're not familiar with David Baldione's style, it's a little little animation style, a little exaggeration in in some of the anatomy and the faces. Uh, we get a classic Spider-Man villain that shows up at the end. Um, the other thing that's cool is. There's a lot of references that Demetrius drops in here to kind of late eighties, early nineties Spider-Man stories. Cause that's when Demetrius was most involved with writing Spider-Man. So we get an appearance from Carrion, we get a, uh, a reference for, uh, to vermin, which is another character that Demetrius had, uh, had drawn or had, uh, had written. So there's a lot to like here. Um, and, you know, just be aware, I want everyone to be aware that this, this is, you know, outside of, of regular continuity almost like a what if story, uh, because some people might think, oh, well, Ben Riley's the, the regular Spider-Man in, in the regular Amazing Spider-Man book right now. So this must be like tied into that. It's not. This is like, completely different and separate from that. And I almost wish they had let that beyond story finish out and then launch this um but maybe they thought that that would make it even feel even more confusing because you would think okay ben finished working for the beyond corporation and now he's moving on to his own title and that's not exactly what's happening but i definitely recommend this if you're a fan of sort of classic spider-man or if you want to see um classic spider-man with an edge or just a fan of of ben riley but it's interesting because this characterization that Demonteus is giving us is very different than the the characterization of the Ben Riley we get in the Amazing Spider-Man book right now. But that's because this isn't really Ben Riley, right? This is a Ben Riley who was the original Peter Parker. So, really fascinating, gorgeous art. Uh, really enjoyed the first issue. Can't wait for some uh, to read some more of it. Uh, okay, Jay's next book is Search for Hugh, number five. This is the final issue. We Dwell in Our Hearts. It's written by John Su and Steve Orlando. Rubin is the artist. D.C. Alonzo on colors. Carlos M. Mongual does the letters. So how do you think it wrapped up, Jay?
1: Not too bad. It's uh, finishing the adventure of uh, MK and uh, Aaron. That's the two main characters. So they're trying to finish with the family ties, I guess, break the tie with the family. Um not giving away too much, but it's a kind of, they don't show too much of the fight scene, but you kind of see in the panelists him going, you know, person in person, working his way into the, the house, you know, to get to the, the, I guess the head honcho of the family, but on the way, he's got MK, you know, kind of watching his back. He says, I really don't need you, but he obviously does because she saves his butt all the time in this series. When he finally gets to the main, uh, his uh, uncle, we kind of get like a big uh won't give the spoiler away, but we kind of give away, you know, why it all played out the way it happened and who was really behind pulling the strings. I didn't expect the ending for that to happen, but it did. I was like, all right. And they kind of just uh wiped their hand for me and went back to the States and that was it. I'm like, okay. So like, you said, like we are talking about this earlier, so it felt like more like a movie than, than the comics. I don't know if that's what they're going for, but it has that movie feel to it, you know, more than anything. But it wasn't bad. I mean, it was it was a fun uh, fun little series, and I kind of like when they're short like this. I don't have to, like, read more and more, and they then I drag the story on for, like, 12 issues, you know?
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It, it was perfectly paced, um, and I, I also got that cinematic feel that this would make a really good, like, Hong Kong action-style movie. Um, you, you almost wonder if that's what they're they're hoping for because it, I mean it's so clearly obvious in the fight scenes and the action scenes in this uh, in this issue as far as the twist at the end I kind of saw it coming um, but it was still satisfying still satisfying to see it play down or you know play out that way uh, go down that way um, so yeah I, I enjoyed it I thought the art was fantastic uh, Rubin did a fantastic job drawing those fight scenes but again it, like I d- do feel like those action sequences, it's so hard to capture what's going on in those action sequences in a comic as opposed to like a movie. You know, like we're we're talking like Matrix level or Jackie Chan. You know, where there's just insane fight choreography and you know like six on one kind of fights and, and that kind of thing. And I can just see it, this story working so well um, in in that setting as a as a movie or or a tv show it would work for that uh as well so i don't know i guess we'll see fingers crossed but yeah it, it was an enjoyable series for sure uh okay up next i have moon knight number seven now this might be a book that gets a little extra traction this week because uh the moon knight trailer dropped during the the monday night uh nfl playoff game um i wasn't a big fan of the trailer but it seemed for the most part it was very very well received so it'll be interesting to see if if Moon Knight the regular title gets any kind of bump from that TV show that's uh, that's coming out soon. But uh, Jed McKay is the writer. Federico Sabatini does the art. Rochelle Rosenberg on colors. Corey Petit on letters. Um, we saw last time that Moon Knight's uh, somebody he thought was his ally, Terry, was actually uh, the the villain Zodiac, and and not like Zodiac like. You know, there's the the Marvel villain group Zodiac where you have a bunch of different characters that are based on um, astrological symbols like Taurus and uh, Virgo and, and all that kind of thing. Um, this is not that. This is a single guy named Zodiac. And so uh, in this issue, both uh, Mark Spector Moon Knight and, uh, and Tiger are, are making calls. They're pounding the pavement are trying to get some answers. Not only do they need to know where Zodiac is, they want to know who he is, like what his motivations are. Uh, because again, they, they've heard of Zodiac, the criminal organization group, but in terms of just one criminal on his own being Zodiac, they, they haven't heard of that. So um, the issue is, is pretty much uh, Tiger and, and Moon Knight going around looking for Zodiac, interrogating other criminals. Um, trying to to get the answers that they're they're seeking. We do learn a little something about Tiger's motivations for f- helping out Moon Knight, uh, and then we're we're left with a little bit of a, a cliffhanger where it seems like next issue Moon Knight might get some of those answers that he's looking for. So, not a whole lot of forward momentum here, and probably, and again, it's so ironic because the trailer just dropped like less characterization for Moon Knight than we've had yet in this series. Like he, Moon Knight barely shows up. Uh, we get as much tiger as we do Moon Knight almost. Um, so I, I, I just thought it was interesting. And I, I know I've talked in the past about not being a big fan of the whole Mark Spector's insane kind of thing. And I know oh it's phases of the moon and, you know, he's got disassociative identity disorder and, and all this kind of stuff. He didn't. It. it he wasn't crazy. Uh, and that's what I. I hope that if if anybody falls in love with the character through this new Marvel TV show, they go back and read the earliest stuff before Marvel started leaning into the fe- like Moon Knight's the crazy Batman. Because um, I feel like it's so reductive to the character and so clickbaity, right? Like, oh, Marvel's got a character that suffers from mental health issues. How like relevant or how you know avant garde or whatever. Um, And there's so much more to the character if you go back and read that first series, uh, that first run, which was hugely popular at the time. Um, So I guess we'll see how it plays out. I I was really happy with the book when it felt like it was pivoting away, pivoting away from mental health issues. And we don't get a lot of the mental health stuff here. But again, I'm just worried because that's we got so much of that overtly in that trailer the other night. And I, I just wasn't a fan of it. So. Uh, all right. Up next for Jay, another Aftershock book. I can't believe we're only on issue three of this because I feel like we've gotten so much of the story already, um, which is great. Uh, it's my date with monsters. It's from writer Paul Tobin. Andy McDonald handles the art DJ Chavez on colors and Taylor Esposito on letters. Uh, what'd you think of this issue, Jay?
1: Hey, right. It's like uh, only issue three, but we have so much of a storyline going on. We got the main character; uh, she's a doctor, Risa, with um, her daughter uh, Mashi, and then I guess their psychic Croak, uh, right? Croak. Yeah. Yep. But he eats the you know the creatures from the dreams.
0: Yeah, the mirror. Um,
1: yeah, the mirror. And then I like, guess the main creature that's in our that came from the dream world is name Is he? His name is Chud, and he's actually walking around doing his own thing now. So. In the last issue, we know that uh, Chud killed some people and took uh, the daughter's hair and was choking her out. So in this one, it's really cool how it works out, how they save her. Uh, and this one, you know, Croak's trying to get some questions answered, but it's like 50 questions that he's getting right back. It's kind of interesting, the dialogue that goes on in that. Uh, the facility that they're training for her to have like a, a, a mate, which is kind of funny for Risa. We have a visitor from uh, that creature again. So there's so much going on in the story. It's just uh, the writing's great because it doesn't lose you when you're reading, you're actually, you know, they can go back and forth to different parts of the story, but you're not lost because it's written so well that you're not, uh, you're following the flow. You're not like, what did I miss? I got to go back. But you're like, you don't have to do that because it's just a smooth transition from from here to here to here. And this is where we're back again. The ending is really cool. I just want to see what happens next because I really enjoy this issue. Uh, I I Actually, almost came out book of the week, but I got a different one. But I just like it because it's just a, a, a well-paced story, and I just want to can't wait for the next issue.
0: Yeah, it's fantastic. And we, I talked about this because um, I don't think you joined me when when, I, when the first issue came out, but I talked about what a like a fresh idea it was, um, and, and that has continued throughout. And what I love about it, so the story is such a great balance between just like a character piece, you know, with Risa and a relationship with her daughter and, and, and even croak, even though, you know, he's not human, you know, it's still a fun relationship. And Tobin gets to play with those relationships. And even the camaraderie between the people that are in the training center, trying to train to basically woo Risa, um, you know, that there's humor there. And there's a lot of humor that just comes from the fact of how ludicrous the idea is that one of the ways that they can help make the world better is to make Machi happy uh, so that she'll stop having nightmares. So the nightmares will stop manifesting. Right. And the way they, they can make her happy is for her mom to find a new significant other. And it's so ludicrous because Risa has to go out on these dates and Tobin leans into that aspect of it. And these guys are just one after another, like weirdos that just have like crazy, just, like one guy takes off as soon as Risa meets him, he takes off his shoe and he's like scratching his, his like athlete's foot. Like who does that? <laughs> like, you know, so it's stuff like that. That's balanced out with like the horror aspect of the monsters, like Chubb or the other mares that show up and are just like brutally callously, unfeelingly murdering people. Right. Cause they don't have feelings. They're literal nightmare monsters come to life. So it has a little bit of a, you know, apocalyptic end of the world type feel, but balanced with humor and, uh, and really great character work. So, yeah, it's a fantastic, uh, fantastic series. Definitely one of the best Aftershock series coming out right now. Uh, all right. Up next, I have Miles Morales, number 34, written by Saladina Med. We have Michelle Bandini and Luigi Zagaria as the pencilers uh, Bandini. Elisabetta DiAmico and Luigi Zagaria on inks. David Curiel does the colors. Corey Petit on letters. Uh, last issue, we saw uh, Miles and shift his sort of his clone that <laughs> didn't really work out that well in terms of like he got cloned, but the guy's like a little deformed and he can't really talk and still seems super intelligent, but yeah, he's kind of like a, a deformed version of Miles. Um, but they were trying to track down the Assessor, and they thought that they had tracked down his headquarters. And it, you know, looked like just a regular old corporate campus. And then when they once they got a little closer and got with in the field of the image inducers, they realized that it's like some extra dimensional sort of headquarters, which makes perfect sense for a guy like the Assessor who can you know, travel to different dimensions and whatnot. So this issue is wall-to-wall action. The whole issue is basically a shift and miles trying to navigate their way through this multi-dimensional type headquarters of the assessor uh, because of the assessor's powers and the way that, you know, multiple dimensions work. Uh, you know, oftentimes they open a door and they find a hallway and they walk down the hallway and open another door and they find themselves in the same hallway. And then they go to the end of that hallway and open a door. And now they're in the middle of the same hallway, like sort of like it reminded me of the hallways uh, in the matrix movies where there's all those doors and they lead to like different places, but then, you know, you just randomly find yourself back in the hallway. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Uh, Saladin Ahmed manages to, to inject a little bit of humor in it. Um, and then eventually they run into uh, some of the uh, assessors, henchmen or bodyguards or what have you. And then the uh, the assessor himself. So not a lot of foreign momentum in terms of, you know, the final confrontation between Miles and the assessor, but uh, it feels like it's coming. It, it feels like, because, you know, the assessor kidnapped Miles at one point and tortured him, left him with a lot of trauma and sort of got away scot-free. And then later on in the series, Um, we saw uh, actually, I think it might have been in the Iron Man annual for the Infinity Stone uh tie in where Miles uh confided in Tony Stark about being tortured. So he's Miles has unresolved issues with this guy, the assessor, and um, it feels like we're going to get some resolution to that. I mean, he even says at the end. Of uh, the issue, it says next month at long last against the assessor. So Miles, Miles finally gets to try to exercise some of his trauma that he's been dealing with ever since the uh, the assessor tormented him. So uh, okay, up next for Jay we have Silver Coin number eight horror comic. This issue is written by Matthew Rosenberg, line work and lettering by Michael Walsh. Colors in this issue are by Tony Marie Griffin and Michael Walsh. Um. Yeah, this one's pretty dark. What'd you think, Jay?
1: Oh, that's my book of the week. You know, I like the creepy stories.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
1: But it's really good. Uh, it just focuses on, um, the story starts off of like, you know, how people work in a, uh, with a corporation. You got the people on top, people in the middle trying to work their way to get the top. And you got the people in the very bottom just getting the crumbs. So, it's, you know, kind of showing the, the, the way social life is, you know, or classes in life. But it focuses around uh, a, a janitor and how he befriends uh, one of the corporate, I guess, uh, head honchos. And he gets a, his, sees his collection he has, which of course is our famous coin, but it possesses him and anybody sees it. That's the object of the coin. It makes you do anything to get that coin. So yeah, it's, it's good because he overhears the guy saying something about he do anything to get the coin. He says, okay. But he didn't really mean for him to do it but it doesn't anyway uh the ending is phenomenal because there's a big old you know battle to get that that crazy coin and it just it's amazing uh the, you can see that if you look at it, you see all the faces of these people when they see the coin they just their expressions are just like i gotta have it you know it's like the precious that's the way i can explain it and even though it, it kills you i mean they're all happy to go just to try to touch that stupid coin and the last panel is beautiful because the background you see what's going on the person with the coin and then you got something like staring over like yeah that's what i want so it's just amazing the artwork that they do that you know just you can see that in the, the face you know they're they're up uh, they want that coin
0: yeah we see when people get the coin how how happy they are that happiness never lasts though so no yeah, <laughs> yeah. fantastic issue really brutal and bloody and gory and yeah like if you want to know what the silver coin uh title is all about like this 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 issue, the story, like perf- perfectly encapsulates what the, the silver coin is about. So, uh, all right. Up next for me, Phoenix Song Echo number four. This is written by Rebecca Roanhorse. Luca Maresca and Kyle Charles are the artists. Colors by Carlos Lopez and Brian Valenza. Letters are by Ariana Mayer. Uh, I, I've said before that I don't really know a lot about Echo. So part of the reason I wanted to read this story was so I could could learn more about her. And w- and what I'm loving is how much Native American authentic Native American like lore and mythology that Roan Horse is bringing into the story. She herself is a Native American, so you know she's perfectly suited to infuse the story with uh, with a lot of that Native American lore. Now that being said, the big bad is somebody that we've seen many many times before in the. Uh, in the X-Men corner of the Marvel universe, the adversary, right? Which is sort of this demonic um, entity that has uh, mental powers. And he, he covets and always has coveted the power of the Phoenix. So he knows that Echo is Maya Lopez is relatively new to this power and he's manipulated her. He's manipulated somebody that, that uh, Maya thinks is his ally or her ally rather. Um, to set the adversary up in a situation where he can steal the Phoenix power from her. So it's a great character study and it's a great series to kind of learn who Maya is, because again, I, I didn't know my, I don't think I read a single comic that contained echo before I started reading this, this book, I bought comics that contained echo. Um some of Jason Aaron's Thor, for example, but I'd never read anything and I honestly, when I read the first issue, I didn't know if it was like a um a one shot or an ongoing um and obviously with the way the first issue ended you know that told me everything I needed to know about how it was an ongoing but um the reason I mentioned that I hadn't read any uh, of Maya before is because I can't give enough credit to Rohorst for how new reader friendly she's made this. Um, and I, I don't know how much characterization uh, Echo had before, but I very much enjoy the vo- voice that Rebecca Roanhorse is giving Echo here, and some of the other characters as well, because there's another very classic member of the X-Men who's, who's searching for Echo, because we know, uh, and I think in issue two, she meets up with another Native American and she, you know, much like myself, I'm learning about Native American mythology and lore and learning about Echo. Echo's looking to explore her own Native American roots. And so she meets up with this other Native American guy and they they go on this journey together where they're traveling back through time um, to try to fix things because the adversary is traveling through time as well and basically what the adversary is trying to do the way he's trying to steal the phoenix force from echo is he's going back and uh, erasing her ancestors so she'll never exist so i'm not 100 clear on how that will allow him to have the power um but in order to fix this echo and and this other guy that she's teamed up with they keep having to travel further back right um to try to fix the the timeline so it's a fun story even though it's time travel it's not hugely confusing but the, the overwhelming uh, reason I would recommend the series is just for the characterization that that uh, Rebecca Roanhorse gives to, to Maya Lopez uh, great way to get to know the character she's very likable um, she has her trauma she has her stuff uh, that makes her relatable as well um, so yeah I'm really really enjoying that uh, that series for sure All right, up next for Jay is Time Before Time, issue number nine. This is written by Declan Shalvey and Rory McConville. Joe Palmer does the art, Chris O'Halloran on colors, and Hassan Otsman Elhow handles the letters. Uh, This one had one heck of an ending. What do you think, Jay?
1: oh yeah um you're talking about not being confusing (laughs) the (laughs) time before time is a little confusing but i think it's just like reading sherlock holmes once you read the first uh, couple stories you kind of get the flow of the uh the pattern how you're supposed to read it so it's not so confusing i think but uh there's a lot going on in this story i mean there's a ton um we know that uh it's uh, 2094 they're so you know doing the battle between the two uh, factions and now they got an idea of how to, you know, get uh, the two main characters. Uh, so Nadia and uh, tasu, But it's so funny because they are there for like a long time trying to look for him, which is kind of, it's hilarious, but it's also kind of sad that they were stuck there for, they didn't want to be there. Then we got Kevin, who's the robot that kind of, puts them in there with uh with with nadia so it's kind of interesting how that plays out the key thing i like about the story is they actually mention where these pods are from they actually say the term i'm not going to say it, but it's like they're going to go with their next issue it's like finally we get to see you know maybe where they come from because this whole time we had no idea who makes them and where they come from there's just everybody's got them it's just these two uh you know these mafia groups are like well, where they come from so i'm thinking hopefully the next issue we'll see you know how they're being made or who's actually making it for them Danny, like you said, was really good. So he's got to see what comes on, what's going to be next. But it's been a fun series so far. Uh, When I first took off, I was kind of hesitant because I was kind of confused. But the more I I read it, it's like, okay, I think I kind of understand what they're doing. And now I'm like, I'm invested in the story. So I want to see what happens with it.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, Yeah, things are starting to fall into place. And I feel like if I went back and reread this from the first issue, it would make even more sense to me. Not, Not that I was completely confused. But, yeah, it does. we've talked before uh, about how much it does jump around through, through different time periods. Um, and the other thing that we've talked about was how, like, right at the beginning, we were told by the writers that you can't go back and change something, right? Like, that, there's something immutable about time, and it will always happen. It will Things will always unfold the way that they're supposed to. And if you try to change something, you'll be prevented in some way from changing it. Um, but at the end of this issue and going forward, maybe there's going to be a challenge to that. Maybe we're going to see how that works in in reality. Um, but yeah, yeah there's, yeah, there's another character that comes on the scene and is like, he's I don't know, he, he's just a character that's kind of like, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not buying that, or you know, you can't tell me what to do. I do what I want. So yeah, yeah. so we'll see how that all plays out. Could could be really interesting. Uh, okay. Blaster for the Past in the next book, it's Silver Surfer Rebirth from the two Rons. So back in the day, one of the most classic runs on Silver Surfer was written by Ron Mars with pencils by Ron Lim. And that's who we have here. Ron Mars is the writer. Ron Lim on pencils. Don Ho does the inks. Israel Silva on colors. Joe Sabino on letters. Um, we. It's interesting because on, on the cover, you see the old school Captain Marvel and we see Silver Surfer. Um, and you wonder, well, Captain Marvel's dead um how's this all going to play out it's a very nostalgic book right we get captain marvel and and our captain marvel's son rather Genis fell and Silver surfer teaming up to start and then all of a sudden things are flipped around and we're in the past but it's not a past that i remember unfolding or seeing uh in any kind of way that's familiar um and then a, another very classic silver surfer captain marvel foe shows up so uh it's it's action packed and it's gorgeous art from ron lim it's very nostalgic but uh in the 20 pages we get i couldn't i couldn't really tell you what the heck's going on which is okay because even Silver Surfer himself doesn't know what the heck is going on. So if he doesn't know what's going on and he's in the middle of it, how are we expected to? So we're really dropped in the middle of of something here. Um, what you got to love about it is just how action packed and chaotic uh, it all is, and how beautiful the the Ron Lim art is. And you know, for for people that picked up that Silver Surfer series back in the day off the rack, like I did. It's very nostalgic. It, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, now, I think in the long run, if the story doesn't start to come together, you know, by three or four issues, then I might have uh, might have trouble with it. If it stays this chaotic, where it, it feels like they're just throwing everything at the wall and, and pulling all, all the heartstrings with nostalgic characters, that's not a that's not a compelling story, right? That's just fan service. Um, and I expect more from these, these creators. So we'll see how it all plays out, but I did enjoy, um, I did enjoy the first issue and seeing old friends. Uh, so we'll see how it all, it all (laughs) unfolds. Uh, okay. Last book for Jay is a righteous thirst for vengeance. We're up to number four. Uh, let me get the creators and, uh, it's written by Rick Remender Andre Lima Arojo is the artist. Crystal Halloran does the colors. Russell Wooten on letters. Um, I feel like this this is the issue that had the most uh, dialogue of any previous issue, but still not, still got more questions than answers.
1: Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It's like, hey, finally, you know, I'm writing. <laughs> so, but they still don't ever mention the. Main character's name, which is hilarious, but they do later on. This one they actually kind of go to his house, the detectives, which is kind of interesting. But the main character is Sonny and he kind of stumbled into the uh, dark web and um tried to help a lady. Her name is Neva. He the last issue he saves her, but the very only at the cliff family were like, Oh, she has a son. And they kind of left her behind, left the boy behind. So this one they kind of finished that story. But we also know, um, I guess the main person that's kind of pulling the strings for the cops and everybody else is uh, out to get Sonny because he wants because I guess he won a Neva and he was a little mad about that I guess but we meet another character that you know chases him down which is kind of a creepy guy he doesn't really do anything um so like the, I guess like the, really, nothing I mean they kind of stop him which is interesting because Sonny doesn't have any kind of special skill he's not a cop he's not a superhero but somehow some way he manages to you know do the you know help out and do the right thing the ending was really cool because it seems like we're going to have more than uh, one villain going after the group, I guess you can say. So I guess we'll have more problems for them coming down the line. But it's, like you said, the first couple of issues were no dialogue. I didn't know what, what was going on. But, you know, like we always, like you always say, you know, give it a few issues, see what happens. And I'm glad I did because now I'm getting more intrigued by the story now.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a slow burn. And I, oh, yeah. I gotta I gotta say that if the art wasn't as fantastic as it is, I probably would have jumped off the book by now um, just because it's, it's the, the narrative is moving so slowly and we've got so few answers. And typically that kind of storytelling is, a it's not something I'm that interested in. Like I'd rather, I'd rather just wait till the whole series comes out and, you know, where I can get the answers and, and be able to you know read it all in one sitting. Um, but I'm reading it monthly because the art is fantastic. I mean, we might not know what the end goal is or the motivations but just in terms of pure storytelling from panel to panel um what what andres is doing is is phenomenal like some of the best art best sequential storytelling art i've ever seen in a comic it's just it's fantastic so uh all right on to my last book this is my book of the week just for uh just for kind of nostalgia purposes i guess because um, it's a return of a of a favorite, it's a return of a favorite character to my favorite version of that character. Uh, so it's She-Hulk number one. It's written by Rainbow Roel. Roge Antonio does the art. Rico Renzi on colors. Joe Caramagna on letters. Uh, for whatever reason, Joe Caramagna wanted to lean in, or Joe Caramagna, Jason Aaron rather wanted to lean into a different version of um, of She-Hulk. She was more savage. She was more like the original incredible hulk or when she turned into hulk she wasn't very smart you know couldn't even talk in complete sentences and she she looks very masculine um, and i i have a feeling that the reason that they've returned she hulk to her roots is because they have the the tv show coming out and, you know they wanted to be recognizable in the comics the same way she is in the in the tv show so yeah. this is my favorite version of, of she hulk and so i really enjoyed what uh, what rainbow rowell did here um, and seeing the classic version of She-Hulk. That's not to say that everything is great for Jennifer Walters. That's not the case at all. Um, you know, she sort of has lost. She's not an Avenger anymore. Um, she doesn't have her own law practice anymore. She doesn't even have an apartment or clothes anymore. So she's, <laughs> and you know, she used to be a clothes horse and dressed very, very beautifully. Um, and that's part of the reason that, uh, a lot of the covers are going to be done by Jen Bartel, who who is uh, draws very beautiful women and is also uh, someone who's into fashion. So uh, looking forward to those fantastic covers as well. Um, but Jen's at a crossroads in her life, and she's she needs to start you know building things back back up. And she does get a couple of things that break her way in this issue, and you it makes you happy to see it, right? Because or at least makes me happy to see it because again, I'm I'm. I'm a fan of this character and I, you know, I want to see her kind of pick herself up and, uh, and kind of rebuild her life. Um, so just when things start looking like they're going in the right direction, we get a surprise appearance from somebody uh, on the last couple of pages, a very obscure Marvel character. Like I wouldn't even say B list. I'd say more like, I don't know, G list, maybe pretty far down the the pecking order. Um, but somebody that I always thought was underused and and, an interesting character. So extremely interesting choice from Rainbow uh, Rowell to to choose this character. Um, And I don't know. I I mean, it sounds like just from the context and the way She-Hulk talks to this character that She-Hulk has interacted with them before, but but I don't know. I haven't haven't read that story, so I don't know where that took place Um, and why the character shows up and what their situation is we, we don't know either. So that's all to be figured out next, next issue. Um, but a little bit of a cliffhanger, really fun issue. Um, if I have any nitpick, they chose to go really muted colors with the art. Um, I would have liked it to be a little brighter because it would have, it would have given more of a sense of fun because it does have a little bit of a sense of whimsy uh, at times. And I, I, I Wish the color artist would have leaned into that a little more and given us some brighter colors, but uh, but overall, a really fun issue. Uh, there's a gorgeous Adam Hughes uh, cover. That's the cover that I ordered, so very much looking forward to to the classic uh, She Hulk returning. So, uh, okay, well, let's give a rundown on some of the other books you might want to be on the lookout for today. Um, from Aftershock, in addition to the books we talked about, there's Heathens number three. And there's a couple trade paperbacks. I cannot recommend these paperback, uh, these trade paperbacks, highly enough because both these stories are amazing. We have Miles to Go, trade paperback, and Silver City, trade paperback. And again, they're both really, really good. They get my highest possible recommendations. Uh, over at Boom, we have the debut of a new Angel miniseries. Uh, Angel being the The character from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's written by Christopher Cantwell, who, you know, friend of the show, super talented writer, showrunner of Hulk Catch Fire. So that's uh, Angel number one of eight. We also have Tom Taylor's Seven Secrets. That's up to number 13. Al Ewing's We Only Find Them When They're Dead is up to number 10 uh, over at DC. And again, all of these books uh, were covered yesterday in the DC Spotlight. We have Batman the Knight, number one of 10. Aquaman the Becoming, number five of six. Batman versus Big a wolf in Gotham, number five of six. Black Manta, number five of six. Remember, I told you a lot of these miniseries are, are coming to a close, getting close. Uh, Blue and Gold, which is the Blue Beetle Booster Gold series, written by Dan Jurgens, That's up to number five of eight. Catwoman, number 39. I mentioned that's the first Tinney Howard written issue. Uh, Detective Comics is weekly right now. The Tower storyline, that's uh, up to issue 1049. We have Green Lantern number 10. Icon and Rocket season one, number five of six. Nightwing number 88. Nubia and the Amazons number four of six. Robins number three of six from Tim Seeley and Baldavar Rivas. uh, Suicide Squad King Shark number five of six. Far and away the best issue of that series. Superman, Woman of Tomorrow, number seven of eight. So again, another mini series that's winding down. Uh, let's see. Also have uh, Superman, Son of Kal-el, number seven, and oh, two more. Wonder Woman, number seven eighty-three, and Wonder Woman Evolution, number three of eight, which feels just like a big old action movie from writer Stephanie Phillips and gorgeous art from uh, from Mike Hawthorne. Uh, at IDW, we have Canto Three, Lionhearted, number five of six, from David M. Boer and Drew Zucker. Uh, over at Image, Bolero, number one of five, which Jay and I both read and we both liked, but we didn't want to talk about it on the show because, I mean, to say this thing is for mature readers doesn't come close to covering it. Like, I, like I would not let my i wouldn't even be comfortable letting my eighteen year old daughter read it, right, but she's an adult, and she'd make her own choices um, but yeah, I mean it is for very very mature readers there's drug use, there's sex there's i mean it's got cool ideas, it's a fun story, but it is it is got a lot of very mature uh art and themes in it, so and there I didn't see any warning or anything on the book so just be aware. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not a book you're going to want your kid to go picking up and go, what's this? And go flipping through it. Uh, okay. Excellence number 12 from uh, writer Brandon Thomas with art by Carrie Randolph that finishes off the second volume of that very uh, amazing series. Homesick Pilots is up to issue 11. King Spawn issue number six is also out. Uh, and then finally from Image Walking Dead Deluxe, which is basically Robert Kirkman's Walking Dead, but in color. It's up to issue number 31. All right. Over at Marvel, in addition to the books we talked about, we have Avengers number 52. We have uh, Eternals number nine. There is a second printing of Hulk number one, if you missed out on the first uh, issue of that. We've also got uh, Silk number one, which I, I, I don't know. I didn't get a preview copy of that for some reason. So, I know there's a lot of Silk fans out there. You probably want to be on the lookout for that. Uh, Venom, number one, also has a second printing. The uh, regular series is up to issue number four, which is also out today. And then in uh, Star Wars corner of the Marvel Universe, we've got Star Wars Doctor Aphra number 18, and Star Wars The High Republic, number 13. And another new number one from Marvel, The X lives of Wolverine, number one, which I I don't know. I'm kind of Wolverine out. I didn't pick it up. Um, it's got like 13 covers though. So I'm sure you'd be able to find one at your comic shop if you're, uh, if you're so inclined. Uh, and I think that's it. Oh, shadow man. Number five is out from valiant, uh, which blood, which blood number 10 from vault comics, which is a pretty popular series. And, uh, and that's it. You got anything else you want to mention, Jay?
1: Yeah. It's from uh, a blaze uh, animal castle. Number two comes out. And if you're a fan of the uh, animal story, the artwork is gorgeous. It's uh, the writer is uh, Xavier Dorson and the uh, the artist is uh, Felix uh, D'Leep, and it's beautiful. It's just a really good story and it's violent because you know it's an animal farm story, pretty much called Animal Castle.
0: But it's really been a fun read. Yeah, a lot of people talking about that book, so might want to check it out. Uh, anyway, that's gonna do it, everybody. Don't forget to check out our other content today. The Spawn Daily will be out uh, probably later in the evening today. Uh, but I'm also releasing my recent interview I did with Carla Pacheco, uh, which was a whole lot of fun to talk to her. We've been, Jay and I have both really been enjoying Spider Woman lately. And I don't know if uh, you listeners out there have been enjoying it, but there was particularly a panel in issue number 18 where... Uh, Jessica Drew is just pounding on Kingpin, just punching him like quickly in succession. In the background of the panel, um, Pere Perez like drew all these whams and Carla Pacheco being the comedy writer and her sense of humor filled the page with wham lyrics. So (laughs) we get the origin of how that all went down uh, from Carla herself. So again, check out the interview. It's a lot of fun. And Carla had had a lot of uh, interesting things to say about her writing style and uh, and Spider Woman uh, in particular. So I hope you guys all enjoy that. We appreciate the support as always, and we will talk to you next time. Thank you. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us.